this message from, is, is for me to help me in times like now. And what we're going through now as a, as a nation, as Christians. So this is, a, this is as appropriate for us now as when it was written a couple thousand years ago. To start off, I, I, I talk about a, a modern misconception about Christianity when a person gets saved. It needs to really be corrected because the, the misconception is this. When a person gets saved and become a Christian, you immediately get rid of all of your trials, all of your troubles, and all of your problems. And everything from then on, from the day you get saved, is just clear sailing, sunny skies, low humidity. Everything is just perfect. Now, I don't want to disappoint you here this evening. I'm going to tell you that that's not reality. That's not true. What is true is our basic spiritual problem has been resolved. The need for our relationship with God has been solved. So when we call upon the name of the Lord, thou shalt be saved. That is indeed not an issue anymore. But with becoming a Christian comes a whole new set of, of problems that we never considered before, before we were saved and, and uh, before we were an unbeliever, uh, before we were a believer. And, and that could cause confuse, confusion even for mature believers. And sometimes confused Christians ask some very difficult questions. I believe I put them in your notes if you have them. You ever hear this question before? Why do good people suffer and evil people prosper? How's that fair, Lord? Asaph, the choir director of Israel, wrestled with this in Psalm chapter 73. Why isn't God answering my prayer? God, it's been days or weeks, months, years, and you are still silent. How about this one? When I'm doing my best for the Lord, why do I experience the worst from others? Anybody ever feel that way? And, and the Christians who claim to have a life without any problems are either not telling the truth or they're not living in the real world. Maybe they're re re living in this religious dream world or something like that that has blocked out all kind of reality. And sometimes they may be very similar to Job's uncomfortable comforters. When Job's uncomfortable comfortable comforters came to him and said, well, obviously something's wrong because God is chastising you. And that's a mentality that even we as believers can have at times. Things are going good, God's happy. Things are not going good, God's mad at us. And trust me, that is not how God works. In fact, Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. So I want, to take, I want us to take our Bibles and turn to the book of Habakkuk tonight. And it's okay to use your table of contents to find it. It's not one that we often go to. 
it has really become one of my favorites because it's so practical for Rick Schneider. But it's not really one that we turn to a lot. It, it's just before, a couple books before Matthew and right after Nahum, if that helps. And while you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. Anybody here encouraged by the news lately? You know, just when you think it can't get any worse, you wake up to a new day. And you find out that it can. You read the headlines and you end up scratching your head wondering, what in the world is going on? And when is this going to end? Now, folks, living by faith in times like ours is no easy task. And if I'm called to live by faith, that means I can't see what I want to see. And what I do see doesn't make any sense to me. That is living by faith. You know, again, we, we, we like to sing about all the great hymns of the faith. And we sing all these songs. And though I must travel by faith, not by sight. Right? I know I'll see Jesus someday. We, we love that. But it ain't easy. It's not easy at all. And in fact, if you give me the option of A, live by faith, or B, live by sight, or C, live by sight and feel like I'm living by faith, I'll take C every time. But C's not an option. That's why we're going to the book of Habakkuk tonight and and again, I don't think many people have their life verse out of the book of Habakkuk. You may have it by mistake because it's actually quoted three times in the New Testament. The just shall live by faith. And this book is also, it's very unique from the other prophets, the minor prophets and the major prophets. It's very unique because it's really not a prophecy to anybody. This book is very unique because it's simply a conversation between a very serious, committed, frustrated, out-of-his-mind prophet and his God. So tonight we're going to work through our way, we're going to work our way through the book of Habakkuk. And folks, it's, it's, it's one thing to work our way through the book of Habakkuk. But tonight, my prayer is that the book of Habakkuk works its way through us. So that's going to be my prayer. We're going to pray together, and, and then we're going to get into this book of Habakkuk, a great, great study in, in, in my opinion. Let's, let's pray together. Father, again, Lord, I do. I thank you so much for the privilege of, of having your word on our laps, on our desks, on our night tables, just on our phones that we can read and study and, Lord, grow in our walk with you. And I pray, I really do, I pray that that is our heart's desire this evening, Lord. I pray that our hearts would be that tender soil, ready to receive the engrafted word with meekness. So, Lord, we can be more like Jesus Christ. And, Lord, I pray that you help us to learn from our study of this great book this evening. I'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, hopefully you're here at the book of Habakkuk, because tonight we're going to have an opportunity to eavesdrop in a conversation that Habakkuk has with God. It's even more amazing that God would allow it, because sometimes, even in the privacy of our own hearts, 
sometimes we question God just like Habakkuk does. And, and let me ask, have you ever done that? Have you ever questioned God? How long? Why? What is going to come? What is going on? <clears throat> and we think, oh, oh, that's bad as a believer to crush. Don't question God. And to be honest, I don't know if it is bad to question God because Habakkuk did. And other Bible believers in Bible times did also. Because we all question God from time to time in our lives. We are human. It's natural for us to do it. Because what we see and what we read doesn't make, very, make sense very often. And, and hence this living by faith thing. So Habakkuk has some real deep struggles with God, with the God that he be, believes in and with the God that he serves. And, and, and we might expect a prophet who has troubles and struggles with the God that he believes in. You would think that God would just zap him like a bug. But God doesn't do that. God invites Habakkuk into a conversation. And that's what the book is. It's only three chapters. And it's three short conversations. And that's what we're going to look at this evening. Because Habakkuk is sitting there as he's writing there and he's scratching his head. He says, I just don't understand. He said, Lord, I just don't get it. So we're going to look at uh, these three different conversations tonight. The first conversation is Habakkuk and he initiates the conversation. Habakkuk asks God, he says, why are you not listening? Don't you care? Look at me, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment does never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore proceedeth. <clears throat> the book of Habakkuk, verse 1, starts off with two words. It says, the burden. And that's not a really good word to start off with, when the word is the burden. That word burden there means it's a deep difficult, hard-to-bear truth with Habakkuk did see. He says, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. And as we look at Habakkuk's initial conversation with God, he, we, we see that he's obviously confident in his relationship with God. And that's a wonderful blessing for each and every one of us. He is confident in his relationship with God because he is saying some very difficult things to God, and he calls him Lord, oh Lord. <clears throat> So he approaches God with confidence that he can do so without negative repercussions. I mean, we feel like if we're going to go to God and ask him how long that he is going to, he's going to strike us or something. But Habakkuk does that. He says, oh, Lord. He's not flipping. He's not arrogant. He's, he's confident that he can speak to God. And, and many times, <coughs> I don't know if it's for you, but I know for, for me personally, many times when we pray or, or we talk out loud to God, there are things in our hearts that we just don't want to say out loud. 
like God doesn't know anyway. It just, it makes no sense because I don't want to say it out loud because God will, God will find out. So we think that if we don't say it out loud, God is somehow not going to know. But Habakkuk is downright honest with God and he starts off by saying, Lord, how long? Let me ask you a question. You ever asked that question, how long? How long? And the only reason we would ask that question, how long, is because it seems that it's been way too long already, whatever it is. And we, um, we know that God never forgets anything, but sometimes it feels like he does. We, asked, we mentioned before, how long? Uh, you, you haven't answered my prayer. Why? It's been weeks. It's been months. It's been years. We prayed for my wife's parents for 20-some years. And you sit there and go, when, Lord, are you going to draw them to yourself? How long? But I know everyone in, in this room probably has struggled with this at times. And you think that God has forgotten us. And, and as a God has never forgotten any one of us, any one of his children. But it feels that way. And God already knows that we feel that way, so there's no sense of trying to put on a facade with him. That could, and Habakkuk, and what I love, he's just straight up with God. God, this is how I feel. How long shall I cry? There are deep needs that I see that are breaking my heart. And they are just, they're not small things. They are deep and serious needs. <coughs> They're deep and serious needs for my nation. They're serious needs for my family. I've been crying out to you, and nothing is happening. And it looks like the good guys are losing, and the bad guys are winning, and we never see the evil get punished. That is what Habakkuk says in verse 4. Therefore the law is slack, and judgment doth never go forth. Is that how you feel at times? Is that how you felt back in November? Or the last couple of weeks? Now, lately for me, I only feel that way on days that end in Y. So, I, I just, I struggle. I struggle. It isn't that God isn't good, but apart from the miraculous intervention of God, there's no reason to believe that it's going to get any better. It's been getting worse for a long, long time. <coughs> and that is right where the prophet Habakkuk is saying, he says, Lord, I just don't understand what's going on. And then God responds to him. He said, Habakkuk, you're going to see my response. Look at verse 5. This is God speaking now. Behold, ye among the heathen, and regard, and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dreadful and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Their horses also are swifter than the leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves. And their horsemen shall spread themselves and the, and, uh, and the horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly as eagle that hasteth to eat. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup as the east wind and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. They shall scoff at the kings and the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They shall deride every stronghold for they shall heat 
heap dust and take it. Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing at his power unto his God. I find it interesting that God doesn't say to Habakkuk, look out, Habakkuk, you are now toast. Don't you ever question me. What God does says to Habakkuk, I will work a work in your days, is what he says in verse 5. And what that means basically is, Habakkuk, you are going to see what I have planned. Which sounds like good news, but it really isn't. Habakkuk, you're going to see. So, oh, Habakkuk, you want soon? You want now? Okay, it's coming. Wouldn't you really love to see God straighten our world out today? Yeah, the answer for every one of us is yes, absolutely. And that's what Habakkuk was praying for. That's what Habakkuk wanted. And God tells him, okay, Habakkuk, I'm already working on it. <coughs> I'm already working on it. You've heard about those Chaldeans? I put them there. I put them there. Verse, verse 6, for lo, I raised up the Chaldeans. He said, I put them there. The up-and-coming world power they found, that followed the Assyrians and, and the... Uh, uh, and guess what? Guess what? I set them up. I set up kings. I set up the... Uh, I rule the kingdoms of men. Remember, I give you leaders according to my purposes. I mean, that's a hard one to swallow. I give you leaders according to my purposes. And that's what he's telling Habakkuk here. I put the Chaldeans in place there. And he says, the Chaldeans will be the most destructive military force uh, on the planet, and they will be my rod of chastisement to judge my people. And that's the end of the first conversation. <coughs> but the second one starts right away, because Habakkuk is just like us. There's another conversation, and uh, Habakkuk is human, and he starts with another question, because he hears God's response, and he asks another question. And, we, and God knew that Habakkuk would not understand. And he knew that it wouldn't make any sense. But here's, here's what we have to understand. If God has to work and do what he is doing within the limitations of my finite mind, then he can't do very much. You know, the, the, the Word of God tells us in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and 9, it reminds us, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, and, your, uh, and neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God says to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, I will do things that you don't understand. You're just going to have to believe what I say and trust. You're just going to have to walk by faith. Habakkuk starts his second conversation with a question. <coughs> and he says, Lord, I just don't understand. Look at verse 12. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment, and O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when a wicked devoureth a man that is more righteous than he? And makest men as he fishes of the sea, as, he, as the creeping things that have no ruler over them? Habakkuk says, Lord, I just don't get it. These people are evil. They do terrible things. They're worse than us. And that was true. 
They're worse than us. They do evil things. <coughs> and that's why Habakkuk was struggling. So look at what he says in verse 2. Uh, I'm sorry, in, in, in chapter 2, verse 1. Here's how Habakkuk leaves it with God. He says in verse 1, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. Here's what Habakkuk is basically saying here. He says, okay, Lord, here's what I see doesn't make any sense to me at all. They are, you are using people who are wicked to chastise us. You see the evil that they're doing and you are silent. But I'm holding on to this that I do know. This is what I'm holding on to because this is what I know. You are from everlasting. You are the Lord my God. You keep your word and somehow we will not die. I know this. You are the everlasting God. The very important spiritual truth for us to, to take to this is that God is a God that keeps his word. The just shall live by faith. So we're going to have to remember that when the world around us makes no sense at all, that God is still who he says he is. And sometimes, man, it takes a lot of faith because it just doesn't make any sense. Because God is still holy. And we need to grasp this truth. If you get anything out of this message tonight, grasp this truth. Write it down if you have to. Pretend like you're paying attention. This, we need to understand this. God may be behind the scenes, unseen, but he still controls the scenes that he's behind. Did you get that? God may be behind the scenes, unseen, but he still controls the scenes that he is behind. Habakkuk says, I'm going to remember who God is, and so I'm just going to have to stand here, and I'm just going to watch and wait until you tell me something. It's actually a very respectful response because Habakkuk is confident that God will answer, and he is confident in the answer that God will give him, whatever that may be. And God responds in verse 2. He says, write this down, Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. Look at verse 2. And the Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie, though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him. Here it is. But the just shall live by his faith. There it is, folks. There it is for each and every one of us. Here's the answer, Habakkuk. Write it down, and write it down big enough so in case if anybody's running by, they can read it. Write it big. What I'm going to tell you is absolutely going to happen. It may feel like it's going to take a long while, but wait for it. As sure as I am God, the answer is coming, and here's the answer. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith.
That is the answer to all of life's problems. In fact, it's mentioned by Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 7. It's mentioned in Galatians chapter 3, 11, and Hebrews chapter 10, 10, 38. So what do we do when we look around at our nation and we see the departure from the truth, even in our churches? What do we do? The just shall live by faith. God says, just talk to me. Come unto me. I know I have lost track of none of my children. God has never lost one of his kids. Never. And we can all quote, he will never leave us nor forsake us. But sometimes it feels like he does. But you know what? The just shall live by faith because God has never lost one of his kids. It's okay to be afraid. It's okay to wonder what I'm doing, God tells Habakkuk. Don't worry, I've got this. So they get to the end of, of chapter 2, and God lays out a whole bunch of different woes, uh, the pronouncements of judgments and things like that, and he ends with a very, very, very powerful declaration. Turn ahead to chapter 2, verse 20. This is what God says. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God says, be quiet. God is in the house. I am here. Now, I don't know, I don't know if we can truly grasp the gravity of the situation that Habakkuk was in. It would be very much like if God in a supernatural way came down to earth here. Well, let's make it even more personal. Came here to Valley Forge Baptist Temple <clears throat> and said to us, okay, here's the deal. The United States of America as we know it will no longer exist. I'd say that's a pretty big deal, isn't it? <clears throat> that would be an unthinkable situation because this country is all that we have ever known. But that is where God is with Habakkuk. That is where Hab he's telling God, wait for it, you will see it. And don't be surprised because I, it's part of my plan. I'm going to destroy this nation, and then I'm going to destroy the nation that destroyed our nation. And that's the end of conversation number two. And we move to conversation number three now. But this conversation is a private conversation that Habakkuk has with God in his prayer. But this prayer is not about the people of God and their relationship to God. This is what's special about this prayer. This prayer is about Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk is basically saying, okay, God, I asked and you answered. What about me? Where does all this leave me? And that's the theme of chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet upon Shigonoth. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath. Remember mercy. 
So Habakkuk begins his prayer, verse 2, with a request, which is what you would expect with most prayers. But if you look at it, he says, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. Let me ask you another question. Ever been afraid? Now, I know the Bible tells us over and over and over again to fear not, don't be afraid. But if we're completely honest with ourselves, there are things in our lives and thoughts in our minds that truly concern us. We all have moments like that. We all do. We are human. And our lives touch other lives, whether you're a husband or a wife or a father or a mother or a sister or brother, grandparent, pastor, all of these other people are expecting us to have our lives in order and, and, and everything, we're supposed to have our life together. But the truth is, when I look at life, it's way bigger than me. It's way bigger than me. And the question of life are way bigger than the small little answers that I might have. Many people here remember Dr. E. Robert Jordan. He always used to say this, and, and, and brilliant, brilliant saying. But he used to say this, I don't know how a brown cow eats green grass and gives white milk. Right? Simple, simple saying. But Dr. E. Robert Jordan didn't have all the answers. And guess what? Neither do we. I know I don't. Pastor Colton probably knows most of them, but not all of them. <laughs> but even, even pastors don't have all of the answers. And Habakkuk says, God, I've heard what you've said, and I am scared out of my mind. And, and, we, and we would sit there and go, wait a minute, that's not faith. How are you a strong believer? Don't you trust God? If you really believe in God, you wouldn't be afraid. <clears throat> here's, the, here's the deal, folks. If we weren't afraid, we wouldn't need to trust God. David said in Psalm 56, verse 3, when I am afraid, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. David! A man after God's own heart. <clears throat> Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7. If you look in there, Daniel chapter 7, it talks about Daniel being grieved, and at the end of chapter 7, it talks about Daniel being troubled. troubled. This is Daniel. David, Daniel. Like Mount Rushmore believers in the Bible. So who am I? Joe, nobody. Rick Schneider. Do not be afraid if these godly men were. It's okay. And I really do think it's okay to ask God why or how long. I don't think there's nobody knows we're thinking it. <clears throat> and that's what Habakkuk is saying. He's admitting that he is afraid. He's admitting that he's overwhelmed. Look at the end of verse 2. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. In wrath, remember mercy. You know what Habakkuk is saying basically here? He's saying, okay, God, go ahead. Activate your plan, push the button, set everything in motion, but in the midst of all of this, remember mercy. Remember mercy. Now, I was reminded about uh, a passage of Scripture when I was studying for this lesson. 
about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and all of the struggle and all of the wrestling and all of the heartbreak that he endured all, all along knowing exactly where this was going. And he finally gets there. The disciples are sleeping. He's sweating great drops of blood, goes a little far, farther. He falls down on his knees, and he prays to God. He says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. <clears throat> and folks, that is the hard, scary thing, just accepting what God has already decided. So here's a question for us to consider, because we have all prayed for our country, and we even prayed tonight for our country, and that's a good thing. And we pray that God would save America, and there's nothing wrong with that prayer. We love it here. This is our country. This is where our children are. This is where our grandchildren are, unless they're on a farm mission field or someplace. But this is where we know. <clears throat> but what if the answer by God to all of our prayers is, in order to get done in America what I want to get done, America as you know it will no longer exist. What if that was God's answer to our prayers? <clears throat> now, it seems best to me that the best way for the gospel to get, to get out into the world and to be promoted through the world is for us to be doing exactly what we do here. That seems best to me. That's my plan. That's how the gospel gets out by us. <clears throat> that makes sense to us because we really do think that without us, the cause of Christ is just going to fade away. And we don't want to say that out loud because that would sound arrogant. And, but in the privacy of our heart, we think that. And here's a question. What would God do if we weren't here? The answer is God would still be okay. Because he's still God. But what if God said, for America to be a Christian nation again, I'm going to have to take away your freedom. For, God, for, for America to be a Christian nation again, I'm going to have to take away your prosperity. I'm going to take away your retirement. I'm going to take away your 401k. What if that was God's plan? Would you be like Habakkuk? Would you be afraid? Absolutely. We'd all be like Habakkuk, and maybe some of us are already feeling like him. Or would you be like Jesus and say something like this, if it is possible, revive our country, restore our liberties, allow us to serve you with greater resources. Nevertheless, if that is not your will, then your will be done. <clears throat> so you see, that's, that's our plan. That's, that's what Rick Schneider wants. But just because that's my plan does not mean that that's God's plan. And we need to be willing to say, not my will, but yours be done. Now, I, I really do sincerely pray that we never really get to that point where Habakkuk is, because that, that's where exactly where Habakkuk is at. He was already at that point, and his response to God was, go ahead, God. <clears throat> Just push the button and activate your plan. And folks, I believe with all my heart, Habakkuk knew what he was saying. <clears throat> it was a white-knuckled, terrifying, rubber-meet-the-road, trusting in God that didn't feel good. But let me ask you a question. Did the cross ever feel good to Jesus? 
no. Now, there was a joy, but it was a joy that was set before him, and it was a joy that would come later. It was just painful and ugly, but it was the Father's will. And from chapter 3, verse 3, to the rest of the book, Habakkuk just speaks as he's praying to God. And <clears throat> folks, this is important because he speaks of all of the great things that God has done in the past. So as I study this, and I'm, I'm convicted and reminded, when I find myself worrying about things, I just have to remind myself to think of all of the things that God has done for me and my family in our lives. You know something, folks? We didn't miss a meal this week. I know you're looking at me saying, we can tell, Rick. But we didn't miss a meal this week. We didn't miss a mortgage payment this week. In fact, we don't have one. When has God ever left me down? Never. Never. Asaph said, Asaph, the choir director for Israel who complained to God, God, I see all these evil people and they're getting ahead and us righteous guys are, <laughs> we're, 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 we're losing. <coughs> Asaph said in that same Psalm 73, verse 26, he said, my flesh and my heart faileth. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's what Habakkuk does here. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. He said, God came from Teman and the Holy One from the Mount uh, Paran and Selah. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise and his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand and there was a, the hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence and burning coals went forth at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. Folks, when we get a fresh new perspective of how great God is, just like Habakkuk, it doesn't change our circumstances, but it drastically changes the way I feel about my circumstances. Nothing is going to change for the circumstances for Israel this time. They're still going to go into captivity. The people are still going to die. The Chaldeans are going to take over. Things are going to, nothing is going to change for them. And Habakkuk remembers all of this, that God is God. And God remembers everything. Look at verse 16. Habakkuk says, when I heard, speaking about this, Conversation with God. When I heard, my belly trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. <coughs> Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Habakkuk says, I am remembering who you are and what you've done. And I know that your plans are not going to change, and that makes me tremble. 
and I know that I'm going to have to align my heart to your plans. So what do I do? Here's exactly what Habakkuk did. Look at verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hind's feet, and he will make me to walk upon my high places to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. <clears throat> Habakkuk says, even though my worst fears are come true, I will find joy in the God of my salvation. And if you are a true believer here this evening, you understand exactly what Habakkuk is talking about. <clears throat> you know, when you got that uh, report back from the doctor that you prayed you would never get, and a perfect peace comes upon you, doesn't mean you're not afraid. Or when you got that pink slip that you weren't expecting, you, and, 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 and this calmness comes over you, where's that come from? Not where, who? It comes from God. That will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. And the person who feels that peace is a person who is rejoicing in the Lord and they will joy in the God of their salvation. Now, folks, no matter what happens... If your worst nightmare, nightmare becomes a reality tomorrow or on January 20th, no matter what happens, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you can find joy in the God of your salvation. And nobody can take that away from you. Nobody. You see, the Apostle Paul was in a really difficult circumstance in prison, yet he was rejoicing. How could he do that? Was it because the Apostle Paul was a Christian, did that make the stones that he sat on any softer? Because the Apostle Paul was this strong Christian, did that make the chains any softer? Because the Apostle Paul was this strong, mature believer, did that make the stale bread and the crusty old water taste like New York strip steak and a cold Pepsi? No. He is in prison rejoicing in the God of his salvation. Amen. Folks, we end it with this. No matter what happens in our lives, we can find joy in the God of our salvation. Here it is, folks. The just shall live by faith. Let's pray together. Father, again, Lord, I, I do. Again, I, I thank you so much for the Word of God because it is so practical. I thank you for the privilege of studying this passage of Scripture, and I thank you, Lord, that you just kind of brought it home to me. And Lord, there are times when I struggle, and there are times when I ask questions, and maybe I don't ask them out loud, but you know what I'm thinking. 
And then I come to a book like Habakkuk, and I see you tell him, and by telling him, you tell each and every one of us, the just shall live by faith. And I confess that sometimes it's hard. I pray, Lord, that you continue to help each and every one of us grow our faith. To get to a point that Habakkuk got to and said, okay, Lord, whatever, whatever you do, I'm fine with it. But just remember mercy. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so would you please stand with me as I read part of his message, Acts chapter 17, and I begin reading in verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious or religious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worship with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life, and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him, and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for this scripture that shows us who you are, the giver of life. Father, I pray today that each one of us would quiet our hearts, be able to put our attention upon the message you have for us, for we are truly your creation. We've been made to give you glory. I pray if there is one and they're just not certain that heaven is their home, I pray today you'd open their eyes, they would believe upon Jesus Christ, and the spiritual life and eternal life and forgiveness of God would flow in them and through them. For those watching and worshiping online at home, I pray if there be any that don't know you, draw them to yourself, strengthen Christians. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In Paul's day, this large rock called Mars Hill was, well, it was covered with buildings. And they held, they held court on top of the rock. And right here, Paul shares this strange new belief. And the belief is that someone, someone arose from the dead. And so they brought him here to be able to investigate. Now, the Apostle Paul, typically when he begins a message of sharing the gospel, he starts off with appealing to the Old Testament. 
He goes into the synagogue and he says, you believe in the Old Testament. I want to present to you these scriptures that point you to Jesus Christ. But these people are not Jews. They don't even know about the Old Testament. And so he does not, he does not begin with appealing to the Old Testament. He begins with an object lesson. And the object lesson is a, it's, it's an idol. It's a rock. And that rock has these words on it, to the unknown God. To the unknown God. And so they had all these idols that they worshipped, and, and he says to them, he says to them, I know who this unknown God is. I've got good news. In fact, archaeologists have found stones with this inscription. You know, our Bible is so very accurate in every detail. Paul says, good news. I know who he is. I know his name. God that made the world and all things therein. He's Lord of heaven and earth. And so right here, Paul introduces another object lesson. And he points up above the Mars Hill to the Acropolis, to the Parthenon, to the Temple of Nike. And he says, God who made the world, God who made you, does not dwell in temples made with hands up there on that hill, that Acropolis. Yes, you got a, you got a statue in that building, but God's not inside those buildings. Why? He's too big. He's too big. And now he had their attention. And so he says to them, God made the world. God made the planets. God made the universe. And yes, yes, he did it in seven literal 24-hour days, according to Genesis 1 and 2, Exodus 20, and what the Lord Jesus said. You can believe something different, but it would only be a fairy tale. What you find in the Bible is the truth. And the truth is that God is the creator. God made the world. So what do we, what do we learn from this teaching that Paul gave to these Athenians in Greece? Number one, God gives life. God gives life. God made you. You are a unique creation of God. Listen to how Job recorded it there in your notes in chapter 33, verse 4. He says, The Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. There's two aspects. There's the physical, and then there's the spiritual. Notice, if God is the giver of life, that means Satan does not have power to give life. Satan and his demons have never raised the dead. Satan and his demons have never created life. Now, in the tribulation, Satan is able to cause an image of a statue to move. The Bible teaches that in Revelation chapter 13, in the middle of the tribulation, there's going to be a Jewish temple, and you can't have a Jewish temple unless you have Jewish people living in the land. And so what happens is in the, in the three-and-a-half-year mark, uh, the Antichrist, the European ruler, comes to Jerusalem, and he puts a statue in that temple, and he begins a persecution of Jews and of Christians. It's called the abomination of desolation that the Lord Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24. Revelation 13 says that this statue is both able to, to move and to speak. Now, before you get all impressed on that, I want to ask, how many of you have ever been to, to Disney World or Disneyland? Would you raise your hands? Okay, yep, yep, a lot of you, more than half of you. And so if you've been to the Hall of Presidents, then, then you know that they have these audio animatronics. They move. 
they talk, they even walk. And what's really kind of cool is that the technology that is described in Revelation chapter 13 has now been developed in our lifetime, which shows we are in the last days of the church age. So Satan does not have power to give life. Mankind does not have power to create life. Scientists have never and will never create life in a test tube. Oh, they can mix up some things that God has already made and say, look what we did. Not so impressive. Creating the world, oh, that's impressive. <laughs> that's impressive. So how did God create life? Well, because he is the omnipotent and omniscient God, all he has to do is, is speak. That's pretty awesome. He just says a word, and it happens. Theologians call it the word ex nihilo. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. Out of nothing. God creates something out of nothing, Genesis chapter 1. So on page 2 of your notes, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, this is before the sun, moon, and stars, so what would this be? Some kind of a cosmic light that God created before he created the sun. God said, let there be a firmament, a sky, and it was, verse 6. God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly, and it happened, verse 24, 20. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures, verse 24. He just spoke, and we visit the zoo and see all of the different creations and designs of the animal kingdom. Verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image. Look in a mirror. You are a miracle of creation. So God, God's crown of creation is Adam and Eve. We are to worship God because God made us. The crowning achievement of creation is mankind. We are his masterpiece. We are more special than the creatures of the sea. We are more intelligent than the animal kingdom. We are more like God than the angels. And this may be the reason that Satan came to tempt Adam and Eve. As Lucifer, he sinned against God because of pride. And as Satan, he sinned and tempted man. He sinned against mankind because of probably jealousy. Because man is a special creation, and God walked and talked with Adam and Eve, and there was a special communion between them. God made man in his image. We see that in verse 26 of Genesis 1. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Two genders. Just two genders. Now what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, God finished creation with a, with a personal touch. God formed Adam literally from the dust and gave him life by sharing his own breath. Now, the word for dust and earth there, it's, it's the word red clay. Pennsylvania red clay. I've been in a lot of it. And so God just, he, he, he pushes together, he sculptures a body, and then look what the verse says to us, chapter 2, 7. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. A living soul that will live forever somewhere. So what is this image of God? Three characteristics. The image of God refers to the spiritual characteristics of the soul and the spirit. So how are we like God? We have emotion, we have will, 
We have intellect. We have emotion. God feels. God rejoices. God grieves. We feel. We have a will. God is free to choose. We are free to choose. We have intellect. God thinks. He plans. We think. We plan. And so we can commune with God. We can fellowship with God. We can communicate with our Creator. Animal kingdom can't do that. We have fellowship with God. So notice on page 2, when Adam and Eve chose to sin, they marred God's image, and they passed that damaged likeness onto all of their descendants. And so today, we, we still bear the image of God, but we also bear the scars of sin. And here's what's really, really uh, interesting. When you were born again, the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of you, and that's why your body is called the temple of God. And then your dead spirit, you had no fellowship with God, the Holy Spirit makes your spirit alive, and you begin to, to as you yield to God, God begins to restore the image of God upon your heart and life. It's called a new man, a new woman. We are created, the new man is created in true righteousness and holiness. And as you think and act more godly, Ephesians 4.24, the image of God is being restored upon you. You may have recently read or heard that God's image is found in your facial features and therefore is not to be covered up. That opinion is not found in the scriptures. Your face is not the image of God. Emotion, will, intellect, that is the image of God. And so letter C in your notes, life begins at conception, and it is to be valued. Many people believe that life begins at birth. I have read and heard unsaved, unbelieving Protestant pastors say that life does not begin until birth. Professor Peter Singer of Princeton, he claims that a child does not have a right to live until he reaches the stage of awareness. And he defines that about the age of two or three. He teaches college students to support legalizing infanticide, that parents can legally kill their newborn baby up until the age of two or three. Princeton should have fired him years ago, and the district attorney should have charged him with terroristic threats against children. So who's right? Who's right? Is it the, is it the Protestant unsaved pastors who say, well, life begins at birth? Is it Professor Peter Singer who says life begins at you know, around two or three? Does it begin in the womb? Does it begin with self-awareness? When does the Bible say life begins? So if you want to know what the truth is, you go to the word of truth. Jesus said, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if you come to the Bible to get the answer to your question, you have the truth. If you close the Bible and set it aside, then you're going to be believing and living an error. So what does the Bible say? When does life begin? Life begins at conception. Psalm 51.5, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin. With a sin nature did my mother conceive me. We receive our sin nature at that moment. God called Jeremiah from the womb. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. 
Before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations, Jeremiah 1.5. God designs the details of our features in the womb. You can read many verses here in Psalm 139. Here's just a few phrases. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Thine eyes did see my substance, and in thy book all my members were written, which were fashioned in the womb. This is the strongest statement on God's prenatal care in the Bible. Like a skillful sculptor, God takes the tiny little hands and the tiny little feet. He creates a heart, and he begins that heart to beat in a very short time. John the Baptist rejoiced in the presence of Christ. And so you know that, that uh, they were cousins. And so what happened is Mary is expecting Jesus and Elizabeth is expecting John the Baptist. And so what we have here in Luke 141, when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, when Mary came down to visit and she knocked on the door and she opens the door and she, the salutation, Shalom, hello, Luke 141. When Elizabeth heard the, the shalom of Mary, the babe, her baby, leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. John the Baptist was not just a cluster of cells. John the Baptist was not just a, a fetus. John the Baptist was not just a part of his mother's body. No. God says it was what? A baby that leaped. For joy, God gave John the self-awareness in the womb that he was in the presence of the Messiah. Woohoo! And he's doing the, the hand-raising thing. I mean, he's just all excited there. She goes, whoa! And uh, she's pretty excited uh, that John the Baptist is all excited there in the womb. Self-awareness that the Messiah was present. A self-awareness that Professor Singer still does not have, all right? With modern technology, we can see the unborn baby, and with awe, we ought to worship God because they are his creation. What, what we have read in Psalm 139 for, for 3,000 years our generation, we now get to see the living, moving, unborn child. And when you look at these pictures, you see the fingerprints of God everywhere. When you see a picture of an unborn child, you see the handiwork of God. One of our members once said, I didn't care about voting until years ago, pastor showed a picture of a doctor doing a surgery on a baby while the baby was still in the womb. And the baby reached out with his little hand and he squeezed the finger of the doctor. And this lady said, when I saw that picture, God spoke to my heart. And I said, I have to vote. And so I show the picture again today. And may God touch your heart. Would you like to see the hand again? Here it is. Here's that little baby that had surgery in the womb. There you see his little hand. And God allowed him 
to continue to live. Now, if you want to be deceived, if you want to be out of touch with reality, you call it what you want, but, but God, God calls a baby in the womb a human being, a person, a male or female child that he has already given an eternal soul that will live forever somewhere, and that somewhere is either heaven or hell. The Word of God teaches us that an unborn child is fully human and has a right to life. There on page four of your notes, so if we believe the Bible, if we believe the Bible, if we believe that God is the giver of life, then we believe in the sacredness of all human life, born and unborn. When a baby is aborted, it is not simply the termination of a pregnancy, it is the killing of an, of an innocent human being made in God's image. Now in Proverbs chapter 24, verses 11 and 12, the Bible says that if you see people that are on the road to death and you have power to be able to help, you're supposed to intervene. You're not supposed to say, well, I didn't know it, when you really did know it. And so that, that touched the heart of Corey Ten Boom. When Corey Ten Boom saw thousands being herded into railroad cars for death camps for mass murder in World War II, she risked her life to help. Many Germans made up lame excuses. Then, just like many Americans make lame excuses today, but not Corey Ten Boom. Her Christian faith propelled her to action. And one by one, she hid them behind false walls. And this is the actual house. Some of you have visited there. She was eventually found out and sent to a concentration camp where her sister died. But through the providence of God, Corey was released and lived to tell the story. When she was asked why she got involved, she very simply said, I had no other choice. I had no other choice. We have two of Corey's relatives in our church to inspire us. Hans Ten Boom and Jennifer. Jennifer, you want to raise your hand down here? That's kind of cool, isn't it? That in our church, we have relatives of this lady, Corey Ten Boom. You know, you can't do everything, but you can do something. We must tell the truth to a generation that doesn't want to hear it. When you kill an unborn child, you're breaking the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder. So what can we do? We're in a battle. Our weapons are, first of all, prayer and fasting. We need to pray for our leaders. Pray for those seeking abortion. Speak the truth in love. It's never right to be unkind. And then watch and share the movie Unplanned. How many of you have already seen it? Would you raise your hands? Just a few of us. And if you have courage, if you have courage, you can watch the movie Gosnell, The Trial of America's Biggest Serial Killer. Uh, Dean Kane is the starring detective in the movie. And by the way, that happened right here in Philadelphia. Unplanned and Gosnell. You can share God's message of love and forgiveness to women who have had abortions. We say to those who have had abortions, we do not condemn you. We say we love you in the name of Jesus Christ. We say that when you come to Christ, you are forgiven of all of your sins. We say that your baby is in heaven. Uh, let me just tell you how this worked out in my life. A number of years ago, we were still meeting in the school building in King of Prussia, the Upper Marion Middle School, and 
And you didn't, you didn't come to church because you drove past it. You had to come to church on purpose. Someone had to invite you to be able to come. And one of our church members invited John. And, and John came. He actually came to the 10 o'clock Sunday school. And as he came, if, uh, we have some people here today that were in that uh, uh, auditorium, room 100, off the main hallway in and, and the school. And it was a tiered classroom, and Pulp was down in the bottom. And, and so I taught, I taught Psalm 139. I've read a couple of those verses to you today. So I taught Psalm 139 and teaching how God creates life and and god fashions the baby in the womb and and that because of that <coughs> we believe we believe in the pro-life position so as soon as the lesson was over i closed in prayer and you got 10 minutes between sunday school and church john came down john dory and he came down and he he said my name is john he said i don't believe a word that you've said and you just love to hear that when you teach and preach. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I, it's not a political thing. It's just from the Bible. I'm teaching Psalm 139. This is what God says. I thought, well, he's not even going to stay for the service. He did. He stayed for the 11 o'clock service. No response. And uh, typically a first-time visitor, someone who is antagonistic and unsaved is not going to come back for the evening service. Right before 6 o'clock, John came back. John Dory came back, and I, I'm right before the service. I'm getting ready to, to begin the service, and he comes down the steps, and he, he says, Hey, Pastor, this morning I told you I was pro-choice. I'm pro-life. What happened? John, what happened? He said, As I was driving home, I pulled the car off to the side of the road, and I prayed, and I asked Jesus Christ to become my Lord and Savior. I got saved. I got saved. Well, guess what happened? In the big pool, the, uh, the indoor pool of the Upper Marion Middle School, John got baptized. He joined the church. John brought his wife, Norma, and, and took a few months. But Norma, she asked Jesus Christ to become her Lord and Savior, and, and she got baptized, and she joined the church. Uh, John was an electrician. He always worked on the, uh, uh, the nuclear power plants during the shutdowns, and he helped build our first building, put the kids in the school, and they were part of our church ministry until they moved to be with family down in Virginia. Share the gospel. You know, you can put caustic things on the internet. It doesn't help a bit. But you can share the gospel, and it helps a lot because we're being changed from the inside. And then vote. Vote pro-life. And then hold up the arms of nursery, children, teen, and singles ministry workers Support our nursery workers. Support our Awana workers. Support our teen workers, singles workers. Support our VBS volunteers. Support our academy staff. Support families who adopt. I, I met a couple today. They've been attending. have adopted two children uh, out of Norristown, brother and a sister. Support our special needs children. Support our Sunday school and junior churches. Better yet, become part of those ministries become part of the solution you see training our kids and teenagers to choose purity so that when a young mom is pregnant she is pregnant in the arms of a loving husband and not and not with a bum or a selfish lust-filled narcissist let's go for the root problem teaching our teens and singles to save their body from marriage and we call that sexual purity hey we're in god's side on this we are in god's side there in your notes we are doing what jesus would do caring for babies in and out of the womb and one day 
the killing will end. When Jesus returns for that millennial kingdom, abortion will end and babies will live. But this day has been chosen for those who believe that God is the giver of life because it's the closest Sunday to the date the Supreme Court made that fateful decision in 1973. How many babies have died since 1973? More than the, pop, the total population of Georgia plus the population of Kansas plus the population of Arizona plus the population of Nevada plus the population of Michigan, Virginia, Iowa, South Dakota, Rhode Island, Oregon, Vermont, Massachusetts, Nebraska, Mississippi, and Alaska. Since 1973, 61 million people have died in the abortion mills. That's equal to 15 states of their current population wiped out, gone, legally killed. 19 million were in black America. We need to work together to rescue them. Black baby lives matter. What we do as a church, what we do as a church in the support of Genesis Pregnancy Care Center, what we do as a church in, in teaching and educating and winning people to Christ, we make a difference. Today, there are 3,000 crisis pregnancy care centers in America. Hundreds of women who think they have no other choice than to abort make the decision to choose life every day. Why? Because someone puts an arm around them, prays with them, gently persuades them not to have an abortion. These women give birth and they are glad they do it. And so if you're struggling with, with the guilt because of an abortion, if you're struggling with guilt because of any sin, any sin, I have good news for you. God still loves you. God has never stopped loving you. He never will stop loving you. Now, abortion is not the unforgivable sin. Abortion is not the worst sin. But it is a sin. But guess what? We're all sinners. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all in the same sinful boat and it is sinking into eternal death. But Jesus Christ came into the world. He lived a perfect life. He died upon a cross for our sin. And after he was buried, he rose again. And he says, because I live, ye shall live also. And if you will come to me and if you will follow me, you can be born again. You can be forgiven. You can have new life. And so this is the message we share and if you will come to the cross and say, I have sinned, God, please forgive me for my sin. I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. When you do that from your heart, he says to you, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. You are loved. Heaven is now your eternal home. Let me tell you of another lady that you know that at one time believed all that I preach today. A lady that you know that at one time believed all that I preach today. Your mom. Your mom. Your mom 
chose life. And you're here today. Jesus said, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Though it's, it's good that we support the unborn, it's good that we are pro-life, it's good to have children brought into this world, but that's not the end. Life is a gift. There's a better gift. There's a greater gift than life. It's eternal life. Because Jesus said, what if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? You've lost it all. So it's not about winning a particular political battle. It's not about having a particular uh, political leader. It's about people coming to Jesus Christ. And to do that, we have to unite together and be, a, be salt, be light, be a witness, and share the good news so that people come to Christ. And that's the fill in there. Come to Christ today. Jesus said, I'll give you eternal life, and that lasts forever. And by the way, that's a very long time, isn't it? Forever. And that's the light that God wants to give us. May we pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of it, what it means to us today to trust in you as Lord and Savior. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed, you say, Pastor, I believe that I am saved. I believe that I'm born again. I believe the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of me. With our heads bowed, our eyes closed, to show respect to our neighbor, I want to ask you today, If you believe that and have that testimony, would you lift your hands all over this congregation? You may put your hands down. You'd say, Pastor, I think I'd go to heaven. I hope I'd go to heaven. Maybe you just raised your hand. But in my heart, I'm not sure I have doubts. But today, I want to get those doubts settled. I want to trust Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. The Bible says, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. You don't have to do it in church. John Dory did it in a car on the way home from church. God will hear the prayer of your heart. But if that's you today, you want to get it settled right now, would you simply raise your hand? I want to trust Jesus Christ as my Savior today. I want to be saved. Anyone at all, just hold your hand up high for a moment. Anyone at all. If you're watching at home, we encourage you to call upon the Lord right where you're seated to ask Jesus to become your Lord and Savior, to trust Him and Him alone, contact us that we might be able to help you. Christian, may I ask you, are you a witness for Christ? Are you willing to be able to, with, with meekness and love and kindness, to share a tract, to give an invitation to church, to share your testimony, but also with boldness and courage to let God use you to be salt and light in this generation. Now, Father, we ask you, help us, Lord. Help us to make a difference in the lives of others, pointing them to you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We have a wonderful opportunity today to see some folks uh, uh, follow the Lord in baptism, and they're uh, preparing for baptism. I'll read their testimonies here in uh, just a moment, but I want to call your attention to some things we have there in the bulletin. So if you want to pull out your bulletin, you'll see our missionaries of the week, the, uh, uh, the Hursts, Chris and Ivy, and they are serving there in the Philippines, and you can pray for them. Uh, they're doing their best to serve and minister in the time of a lockdown. And then the Sanctity of Life uh, Sunday, we want to, to drop off uh, things to be able to help 
the ladies both before and after uh, they give birth to their baby. And, and so if you want to drop off some clothes, a, a grocery store gift card, lotion, other things, diapers, you can drop that off in the, in the baskets by the doors. Then Sensory Friendly Family Day, this coming Saturday from 9 to noon. There are still just a few slots open from noon, uh, 9 to noon here in the Family Life Center. And so individuals with special needs, socially distant activities for all age ranges through adults are going to be provided. We'll be a witness to them, show care to them. So if you know someone, take one of the cards, make an invitation. And even if they don't make it, just by giving them the invitation, lets them know that we care. And so that's something that we might uh, be able to do this coming Saturday. We have the workers all planned. So if you just pray that that'll be a good witness to these families. Secret sister meeting, the end of the month on the 31st. That'll be at 5 o'clock. You pick up the form on the table uh, as you uh, exit today. If you're worshiping online, we invite you to be able to uh, be a secret sister. We started this many years ago, but of all the years we've ever had it, this is the most important year. You be a part. You can do it from home, and uh, you contact uh, the church. I think there might be some instructions on the bulletin uh, how to be able to uh, be a part of that as well. And then a uh, special congratulations to Bill and Jay Richards on 60 years of marriage, if you can imagine. So on the 19th, Bill and Jay, let's go ahead and congratulate them. Wow, that's a long time. Being married for 60 years. Also, we have a business meeting coming up in two weeks. So it'll be 5 o'clock here in the Family Life Center. Everyone is invited. You do not have to be a member to come to the business meeting. Only members can vote in it. And for you who are watching online, we've never done this before, but we're providing a way for you to be a part of it as well. You can see the bulletin for instructions on how to be able to connect via live stream for the business meeting. And then want to just be able to give you a report uh, from the Genesis Pregnancy Care Center on what's been happening. And so the director, Wendy Burpee, has, uh, has shared that. In, in 2020, uh, Genesis Pregnancy Care Center remained open as an essential part of our community. And this is, this is where it all begins. If we can have some, we'll go ahead and do the lights now. It's the ultrasound. And what happens is when a mom sees her baby she knows it's a baby she knows it's a person many legislatures have tried to pass laws requiring requiring Planned Parenthood to be able to show this and that has always fallen on on deaf ears but this is where it starts and so we're glad that that these two care centers do have uh, ultrasound so that the moms can see their babies there were 500 client appointments in 2020 72 of these appointments were undecided pregnant women. 70 of those women chose life. Here's a mom who, when she found out she was expecting twins, and you can see Wendy holding up two fingers, when she found out that she was expecting twins, she chose life for her twins. Since the start of our medical services on Mother's Day 2019, Genesis has helped save 115 unborn babies. I think that's something to cheer about, isn't it? 115. They came, they would have been aborted, but they were born. Here's a picture of three of them. She said, we shared the message of Christ in every appointment. <clears throat> we opened a second clinic in Phoenixville on December 5th. 
And your giving, your prayers, your continual support are saving lives. God bless you. Uh, thank you, Wendy and the team of Genesis. One more picture. Here it is. Here's a little girl that was saved since uh, Mother's Day 2019. Because of your support, because of Valley Forge Baptist support for the Genesis Care Center, when she can talk, she will say, my mommy chose life. My mommy chose life. 115 babies rescued in our area since Mother's Day 2019. Don't tell me that we can't make a difference, but we have to join together. We have to set aside some preferences. We have to decide what is most important, life and eternal life. And as we do that, we make a difference. And so let me share the testimonies of those getting baptized, and then we have a short video that has been uh, prepared by our young people. And so this is from Jay Johnson. He writes, I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior at a four-square church in 2009 with my wife Crystal in California. I realized at that point I was living a sinful life. I needed God's guidance and wanted to live for Him. However, we felt something was missing at that church, so we decided to leave and ended up at even a more charismatic church. The people were extremely friendly, but as we started reading the Word of God and drawing closer to the Lord, God led us to a different church. Through prayer and Crystal's uncle, we were introduced to Grace Community Church. We attended Grace for about seven years and then decided to leave not only our church family, homeschool group, but our grown kids and six grandsons as well to join Crystal's parents here in Pennsylvania. That's Jack and Lisa Fry. As it states in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come unto him and dine with him and he with me. Christ has been pursuing me for many years and I look forward to serving him and glorify him in all that I do. Jay Johnson. This is from Crystal. I accepted Jesus into my life while I was at a charismatic church. I realized that I was living a very sinful life and I was broken over my sin. I was overwhelmed with the Jesus sacrifice and his love for me. I began reading my Bible so I could get closer to God. My husband and I answered a call to be baptized in that church. I later realized that church was a false church and believed in special revelations. So Pastor Wendell and Pastor Eifert helped me to understand that I may want to be baptized in a Bible-believing church. God has blessed me with the opportunity to get to know Him through His Word. We left that church and were guided by my Uncle Mark. He also discipled Jay and I. He suggested that we go to Grace Community Church. There I learned so much about the Word of God. I continue to love and obey my Lord with all of my heart. Crystal Johnson. Then their son Isaiah, the daughter's been saved and baptized, Sky, but their son Isaiah writes, We had a meeting with Pastor Wendell a few months ago, and in his office, he asked me if I knew if I would go to heaven if I died today, and I replied that I wasn't sure. That's when Pastor Wendell ministered to me God's word, and I immediately received, realized that I needed God in my life, and that's when I accepted our Lord Jesus Christ into my life. Isaiah Johnson. And so we rejoice with them, and we're going to go ahead and, and show that uh, uh, Genesis Care video this time while we prepare for baptism. 
Today we are here to recognize Sanctity of Life Sunday. As a woman who has suffered the pain and trauma of abortion, it is my mission to do everything I can to encourage women to choose life. Not only for the sake of an unborn child, but also to save that mother from the shame and regret that comes from terminating the life of her own child. I thank God for his mercy in my life. So in addition to being the director of Genesis Women's Clinic, I am here to encourage the next generation to make their stand for life in this current culture. Teaching our kids the truth about life starts with me and the lessons I share with my own daughter so that she can become a powerful voice for truth amongst her peers. Hello, my name is Brooke and I'm here with my classmates to share with you what we have learned about what it means to be pro-life and let's not forget the most important thing, what God says in Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I dedicated you. A prophet appointed you. My body, my choice. If the child is part of your body, then you would have two hearts, two brains, and four lungs. The heart that beats inside of a pregnant woman is not hers, it is her child. Men have a legal obligation to pay child support for 18 years. If the government enforces men to support the unborn child, why should women have the right to abort them? Life is not valuable or sacred based on cultural, ethnicity, convenience, financial status, or ability to parent. Life begins at conception with a unique strand of DNA which stretches throughout our entire body and makes up our whole being. Life that is created only once by God. Life is not determined by size or development. Every human life is precious and worthy of our protection. Almost 80% of Planned Parenthood offices are located in minority communities where Hispanic and African American women live. Women from low-income communities are often encouraged to choose abortion. Extensive research has shown that 60% of women who have had an abortion have also considered suicide. Of that, 28% have attempted to take their life, and 18% have attempted more than once. The pro-choice movement has systematically taught our young culture that no one should tell you how to handle your unplanned pregnancy, not even God. These young men and women are the future of the pro-life movement today. They are warriors in the making, speaking out to protect the unborn and be an influence in this current generation. I am Wendy, and I stand for life. I am Brooke, and I stand for life. I'm Sarah, and I stand for life. I am Noah, and I stand for life. I am Chloe, and I stand for life. I am Lauren, and I stand for life. I am Brenton, and I stand for life. I am Faith, and I stand for life. I'm Saniya, and I stand for life. If you're interested in learning more about pro-life arguments, visit my YouTube channel, Think It Through. All right, if we could have the lights now. This is the Valley Forge Baptist hot tub. <laughs> One way in. Got to be saved and uh, become part of the church family. And so it's exciting to be able to have three folks getting baptized today. I'm going to ask Jay. Johnson to come this time. You just heard his testimony. Moved here from California to be with a family, be with Jack and Lisa. And, and uh, you've already been serving around here in so many ways, construction there in, in Camden, New Jersey as well at Inner City Baptist Church. And so thank you for your heart uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's see, are we, uh, are we able to show that? And so we, uh, we have our technology here and we'll try and get that hooked up so you can see that. But we, uh, Jay, so, so thankful that you've asked Jesus to become your Savior. 
want to become part of our church family and leading your family, as Joshua said, as me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Upon your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in obedience to the Great Commission, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, buried with him in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Amen. Glory to God, Jay. you want to stay here, you can help with Crystal as well. And this is Crystal. We're so glad that you've been saved and love the Lord Jesus. It's warm. There's a big step here. Yep, it is warm. Crystal, we're so glad you've been saved. Thank you for sharing your testimony today as well and having family praying for you and family helping disciple you. That's a blessing to be able to hear. Upon your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in obedience to the Great Commission, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, buried with him in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Amen. 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 Glory to God. As I said, their daughter Sky has been saved and baptized, but their son Isaiah... Uh, he loves the Lord as well, and he just did not have that assurance. And so when we talked together, went right through the scriptures, and he said, that's what I want to do. And he prayed to ask the Lord to be a Savior, and you heard his testimony today as well. So Isaiah, upon your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in obedience to the Great Commission, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, buried with him in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Amen. Okay, we don't have any jets installed yet, but uh, maybe maybe in the future we'll get that. Well, let's all stand together, and I'd like to ask Pastor Eifert to come, and he's going to lead us in closing prayer. We continue our series on the, uh, the king of Israel, David. Jerusalem is named after him, the city of David. You want to be a part of the life lessons we have from David's life. Yes, in fact, it's going to be a follow-on to David's life. We thank the Lord for the series that Pastor Wendell preached on David. I thought we're going to continue with the life of Solomon, and so you want to be out on Wednesday nights uh, at 7.15, where we'll show it online as well. Let's go ahead and pray together, shall we? Yes. Yes, yes, that is. So uh, we are opening classes and services, so... Uh, that is going to be in the auditorium, not in here. It's 7.15 starting this coming Wednesday night, uh, the study on Solomon. That'll go for about six or seven weeks. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for this wonderful day in your house. Thank you for each one who is here this morning. And uh, Lord, we're especially grateful as we think about the life that you've given to us. Lord, I pray that none of us would take for granted the precious gift of life, especially all that we've been through this past year. Lord, we know that life is precious. And I pray that that uh, we would be thankful to you for the gift of life. I pray that we would make our appreciation known to others as we share Christ with others, as we share eternal life that you've given to us. Might we be good witnesses for you. And I pray for every mom in here, Lord, that you would continue to uh, allow their influence over their children, Lord, to be strong in the Lord. And thank you for the moms that have brought children into this world. And I pray that they would continue to have a godly influence in people's lives for those who have already maybe struggled with the past abortion, might they know, Lord, that, that you're a forgiving God, and as they've sought you for forgiveness, they are forgiven, and might they walk in, in, in um, victory and strength. 
Thank you for the Genesis Crisis Pregnancy Center and what they do in, in um, protecting the unborn life and help us to be supportive of them. And Lord, we pray that this year they would save many, many more children from an abortion. And so bless that work and Wendy and others who serve in that capacity. Thank you now for this the time to be together in the Word of God and in your house. Pray that you'd bring us back together safely tonight as well as we have the opportunity to hear the Word of God. Might we strengthen one another as we get strengthened in your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible tonight, if you would, uh, please open to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 18. 2 Samuel 18 this evening. Last week we saw David leaving Jerusalem because of his son Absalom was attempting to steal his throne and the kingdom. Uh, again, in our, our study of the Old Testament, there are many chapters dedicated to the life of David. Uh, David was given the promise that uh, his descendant will become the Lord Jesus Christ and that Jesus will rule and reign from Jerusalem, from the city of David for a thousand years. And all of us can be a part of that eternal kingdom when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So the, the Bible spotlights so much of his life, and this particular time is a very difficult time. And so he is leaving his city on the way out of town, Shimei, uh, one of those associated with the previous king, King Saul, is cursing him, throwing rocks at him, lying about him, even said that God had delivered the kingdom to Absalom. A word of caution, let's not be like Shimei. Uh, let's not be quick to conclude that we know what God is doing in another Christian's life. Uh, what you might think is God's chastisement in someone's life, it just might be God's loving trials to refine them into pure gold. And so, what Old Testament character does that remind us of? Job. I can't help but think of Job and his three friends. If you read the beginning and the ending chapters of the book of Job, you have a pretty clear picture of what is happening in what is the oldest book in the Bible. The message of Job answers the age-old question, why do the righteous suffer? Why do good people suffer? The conclusion is to make a good man better. God desires to use trials to bring us closer to Him, to trust Him, even when we do not understand what's going on. And so Job cries out in the middle of this struggle, Though He slay me, yet will I, what? I will trust Him, trust in Him, Job 13, 15. So Job was having a hard time figuring out what was going on in his life. Deep trials, uh, the, the death of all of his children because of a natural disaster of a tornado, the loss of all of his wealth uh, through uh, marauders and raiders coming in, the loss of his health. But Job's three friends, like Shimei, come along and say, Hey, Job, we, we know why you're having such a hard time. We know why the tornado killed all your kids. We know why you lost all of your wealth. Job, we even know why you're sick. Job, you have a secret sin. You have a secret sin. God is punishing you. Go ahead and tell us what you've been doing. Confess it and you'll feel better. Well, you know how the story ends. God does not explain himself to Job. But he asks Job over 60 questions 
that reminds Job of God's great power and glory. Uh, Job, where, where were you when I made the world? Job, how do you, do you understand all the scientific things that are happening uh, in the world that I hold the world together? And Job responds, I know that you can do everything, God. I have uttered and I understood not things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. He says, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Oh God, how could I question your ways? How could I not trust in you in my deepest, darkest times? As for Job's friends, God said to Eliphaz, my wrath is kindled against you. God says, I am mad at you. Go and ask Job to pray for you because he is my real servant. And then God blessed him double. Now Shimei, Shimei was wrong, like Job's friends. But David magnanimously forgave him. David's nephew Abishai was ready and willing to dispatch Shimei to his maker twice. Let me go cut off that dead dog's head. Both times David says, leave him alone. I forgive him. What a contrast now to Ahithophel, who joined the revolt against David. Ahithophel was David's counselor, a trusted counselor. He was part of his staff, part of his cabinet. But Ahithophel had a secret grudge, but it was not revealed until the time Absalom tried to steal the throne. And we find out what happened through just a couple of verses. 2 Samuel 11, verse 3 where the Bible says that Bathsheba is the son of Eli, or the daughter of uh, Eliam, and then 2 Samuel 23, 34, Eliam is the son of Ahithophel. So you mean there's a reason that God puts all those genealogies in there? Yes, yes, and so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and so-and-so begat, so-and-so. The main reason is that when you get to the gospel writers of Matthew and Luke, they can verify and prove that Jesus Christ is of the tribe of Judah, that he has a claim to be Messiah. No one could do that today, but they have the record. A second reason is to be able to fill in the blanks, connect the dots, and what we find is that that Ahithophel is the grandfather of Bathsheba. And we find out when he joins Absalom's revolt that he is now a bitter old man. He never forgave David for taking and marrying his granddaughter. But in chapter 17, Absalom did not follow his counsel, but rather the counsel of Hushai. Hushai was a spy for David. Look with me at 2 Samuel in chapter 17 and verse 14. The Bible says, And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai, the archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had appointed to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring evil upon Absalom. Now, now the evil does not, mean, does not mean wickedness. It means disaster. It means calamity. It means hurt. So through, through the spy network of chapter 17, David receives the news, and he is able to escape to safety. He is able to assemble his army. So we're going to jump ahead. We're going to pick up the story in chapter 18. So would you please stand with me tonight? Tonight's message is entitled, David's Great Loss. 2 Samuel 18. He is going to regain the kingdom, but he's going to lose a son. 2 Samuel 18, verse 1. <coughs> and David numbered the people that were with him, 
And he set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. And David sent forth a third part of the people under the hand of Joab, the third part under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and a third part under the hand of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said unto the people, I will surely go forth with you myself also. But the people answered, Thou shalt not go forth, for if we flee away, they will not care for us, neither if half of us die. Will they care for us? But now thou art worth ten thousand of us. Therefore now it is better that thou succor us out of the city. And the king said unto them, What seemeth you best I will do? And the king stood by the gate side, and all the people came out by the hundreds and by thousands. And the king commanded Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains charge concerning Absalom. Let's pray. Lord, tonight we are thankful that we can be in your house, sing praises to your name. We're thankful for those worshiping online that we have the freedom to be able to read, teach, share the gospel. We ask that you would preserve this freedom. We ask that there would not be government interference or taxation upon ministries that want to help other people. So, God, would you sovereignly work, just as you did in the life of David in the kingdom of Judah, would you sovereignly work, would you bring peace that we might have the freedom to share the gospel and help people to come to know how they can be forgiven of all of their sins by admitting that they need a Savior, by humbling their heart to be able to ask Jesus Christ to forgive their sins because they believe that he died for them and rose again. Now, Lord, give us insights concerning uh, this difficult chapter of what happens. Help us to look to you in our dark days, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The Bible is filled with instructions for dads, for moms, for sons, for daughters. In fact, the book of Proverbs pleads, pleads for young people to take heed to the advice and the counsel uh, of their parents, their fathers and mothers. My son, hear the instruction of thy father. Hear the instruction of thy mother again and again. And then there's a blessing. There's a blessing for those kids who obey, and there's tragedy for those kids who disobey. But as you look to the top of the page of that book of Proverbs, you see this word, Proverbs. Proverbs, And they're just that. Uh, they're general truths, not in every circumstance. Proverbs, not promises. A proverb is a wise saying that teaches a lesson or expresses a truth. And it is perplexing as we read about Old Testament kings. We read about a good king having a good son. We read about a good king having a bad son. We read about a bad king having a bad son and then we read about a bad king having a good son and yet you, you scratch your head and and you just wonder what in the world is going on and it's it's as if these kids have a mind of their own because they do 
like they have a free will because they do can you imagine the grief of adam and eve when they discovered that their firstborn son cain killed their secondborn son abel years ago sight and sound did a production entitled in the beginning anybody here see that oh many of you based on the book of genesis Fabulous production, amazing how they recounted the creation account. Further into the production, it, it looks like Adam and Eve have like 32, 34 kids, and they name them all. And there comes a point where there is a rebellion. About a dozen of the kids, now grown, they look at mom and dad, and they say, we've never seen your God. You say you walk with God. You say you saw God, but we've never seen him. And they all walk away. What heartbreak. And we think how, how Adam and Eve did walk with God in the cool of the garden in the evening. They were eyewitnesses. And one generation said, we don't believe it. They walked away from the Lord. With great heartache, Adam and Eve watched that happen. Our children bring us some of life's greatest joys, but they have the potential to bring us some of life's greatest heartaches as well. And that's 2 Samuel chapter 18. So we find the preparation for this battle. In verse 1, they number the soldiers that are with them. Again, they have crossed over the Jordan River on the east side. In verse 2, they, the army is divided into three parts. And so a third will be controlled uh, by Joab. A third will be controlled by Abishai. And a third under the control of Ittai. And David says, I too shall go out to battle. But in verse 3, the people say, no, no, you're our leader. And we want you to stay safe back here at headquarters. Uh, clearly, they know that David is older and he is, doesn't have the strength, the physical strength that he had when he was a young soldier. Verse 4, he agrees to their request. Verse 5, this is key. And the king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. This was a public request. Everybody heard it. Then the battle begins. Let me read to you verses 6 to 8. So the people went out into the field against Israel. The battle was in the wood of Ephraim. Wherefore the people of David were slain before the servants of David, and there was a great slaughter that day of 20,000 men. For the battle was, was there scattered over the face of all the country, and the wood devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Now, this battle is just east of the Jordan River, and the forest was so thick and so dense. And I don't know what the circumstances were. We're not given the details. But, but more men died in the forest than in the battle. What's interesting is the writer only gives two verses about the battle, and we're going to have ten verses about Absalom's demise. Nothing seems the way it should be in this chapter. David gives a request, it is ignored. 
The handsome rebel Absalom gets trapped in a most undignified way. Two messengers are sent to David with the news, and that didn't go so well. And so let's take a look at the main characters and see what we can learn from it. Number one, Absalom. Absalom is defeated in an undignified way. Verse 9. And Absalom met the servants of David, and Absalom rode upon a mule, and the mule went under his thick bows of a great oak, and his head caught hold of the oak, and was taken up between the heaven and the earth, and the mule that was under him went away. The Bible is so descriptive, isn't it? In such a, a few words, such an amazing amount of information is, is uh, given to us. How many remember the preacher Lester Roloff? Anybody remember him? Okay, Lester Roloff was on the radio. Got to hear him in person at Baptist Bible College there. And uh, he had a message on Absalom. And it had something to do in the title with basically something about a, you know, a hippie from the 60s stuck in the Old Testament. And, and uh, so what happened here is this man, if you remember, Absalom, he was handsome, he was gifted, he had A-plus personality, and his hair was so thick that he only cut it once a year. And he cut it once a year, and he should have cut it before he went out to battle, but he didn't. And so uh, he may have looked handsome on the outside, but he was ugly on the inside. And his vanity and his pride ended up being his downfall, or should we say his hang-up, all right? His hang-up. Uh, maybe Absalom, maybe as he's riding on his mule, maybe he's looking for reinforcements because he sees some of David's soldiers, maybe he turns around. We didn't know exactly how this happened, but, but there might have been some low-hanging branches, a fork in the tree, and it catches him under his neck. Maybe it's the hair that gets entangled, uh, or maybe both. But what happens next is pretty almost comical. He gets his head caught, and the mule keeps on going. So there he is. There he is, the rebel leader, all by himself, stuck in a tree, with his legs dangling. What a picture. And one of, one of the soldiers of Israel under Joab's leadership sees this. Verse 10. And a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanged in an oak. He said, can't believe it. I mean, you talking about having the enemy served up on a platter, and uh, uh, here he is. What is going to happen? And so Joab chides the man and says, well, why didn't you kill him? This is the enemy leader. This is the rebel leader. And he said, oh, oh, no, no, no. Uh, he said, I'd give you 10 shekels. He said, I wouldn't take 1,000 shekels. Didn't you hear what the king said back in verse 5? Didn't you hear what the king said? He said, deal gently with him. I'll lose my life if I take him out. Now Absalom is going to be defeated in an undignified way. We pick it up in verse 14. Then said Joab, I may not tarry thus with thee. And he took three darts in his hand, and he thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And ten young men that bare Joab's armor compassed about and smote Absalom, and they slew him. Commentator Dale Davis writes, This is the end of Absalom, the darling of the media, the rising prince who could work the crowds with such finesse and flair. 
This is the end of the one who would attempt to destroy God's chosen king. You know, what a picture of the final end of all who fight against God's kingdom and God's plan, God's king and God's people. Oh, oh there might be some temporary success by the wicked in this world, but the day of judgment is coming for all. And it's a somber truth. God will rescue his people and God will bring judgment on those who oppose him. Absalom is defeated in an undignified way. Then we see Joab. Joab is the one who acts decisively. David said, deal gently with the boy. Now those orders would make sense if Absalom was about to check himself into, say, an addiction program to recover from his sinful addiction to power. But this is war. And David's orders were clear. They were public. They were moving and emotional, but hardly wise. On one hand, David is asking his soldiers to risk their lives to fight for him on his behalf. But on the other hand, he's asking them not to kill Absalom, to be gentle. Now, in most battles, there would not have been an opportunity to spare Absalom's life, right? I mean, you're, you're in the middle of the battle. It's, it's hand-to-hand combat. Uh, they didn't have guns. We're talking swords and spears. And, and it just, it was an unreasonable request. It just wouldn't happen. But oddly enough, when Absalom is caught in the tree and lost the mule, the possibility of sparing his life came to be. One commentator says, the action of Joab taking Absalom's life was both rebellious and rational. Rebellious and rational. Rebellious in light of David's request and rational for the recovery of David's kingdom. Joab wants to make sure that Absalom will never be a threat to David again. Joab feared if he would have given him a haircut, take him down, tied him up, taken him back to King David the dad, what might David do? He's thinking sentimentally. He might let him go. You let him go, then he could be a threat to them again. So Absalom takes his life. Joab feared if he brought Absalom back, David would let him free. So in chapter 19, Absalom tells David to stop mourning and act like a king. He says, you're acting as if, you're acting as if you would be happier if we all died and the man who wanted to kill you had lived. Joab is quite the enigma here. Sometimes he's right, sometimes he's wrong. Life can be complicated. And the Bible doesn't always give commentary on some of these Old Testament characters' actions. It just tells us what happened. There's, there's Absalom. Now we come to Cushai. Cushai, the one who speaks the truth. So <coughs> Joab has blown the horn, calls for retreat, and so they have won the battle. Now we come to Cushai. Verse 19, chapter 18, verse 19. Then said Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, let me now run and bear the king tidings, how that the Lord hath avenged him of his enemies. Joab said unto him, Thou shalt not bear tidings this day, but thou shalt bear tidings another day. But this day thou shalt bear no tidings, because the king's son is dead. Then said Joab to Cushai, this is a foreigner, of the Cushites. <coughs> then said Joab to Cushai, Go tell the king what thou hast seen. And Cushai bowed himself unto Joab, and he ran. 
Then said Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, yet again to Joab, But howsoever let me, I pray, also run after Cushai. And Joab said, Wherefore wilt thou run, my son, seeing that thou hast no tidings ready? But howsoever said he, Let me run. And he said unto him, Run. Then Ahimeaz ran by the way of the plain and overran Cushai. See what's going on here. So we got to get news back to David. It's not going to be good news about his son, but good news about the battle. Ahimeaz comes to Joab and he nominates himself to be the messenger to take news of the victory to David of the battle. Joab says, no, it's probably not a good time. Let's send someone else who might be expendable in case the king explodes. Let's send a forder. Let's send Cushai. And we'll have him go. And off Cushai goes running with the news. But Ahimeaz continues to pester Joab and he says, let me go too. Let me go too. And so he is given permission to go. Now, we don't know if he says faster or he knows a shortcut, but the Bible says he overtakes him and he makes it to David first. Verse 24, David is watching and waiting. And David sat between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof over the gate unto the wall and lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man running alone. David is waiting, news of the battle, or is he waiting for news of Absalom? Verse 25, And the watchman cried and told the king, and the king said, If he be alone, there is tidings in his mouth. And he came apace and drew near. And the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called unto the porter and said, Behold, another man running alone. And the king said, He also bring the tidings. And the watchman said, Methinketh the running of the foremost is like the running of Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He's a good man, and he cometh with good tidings. Ahimeaz outruns Cushai. He gets to King David first. Look at his report in verse 28. Ahimeaz called and said unto the king, All is well. And he fell down to the earth upon his face before the king and said, Blessed be the Lord thy God, which hath delivered up the men that lifted up their hand against my lord the king. Victory in battle. Verse 29, the king said, Is the young man Absalom safe. And Himeiah answered, When Joab sent the king's servant and me thy servant, I saw a great tumult, but I knew not what it was. Is that true? He's lying. He's not telling the whole truth. Cushai is going to be one who speaks the truth. And so, verse 30. The king said unto him, Turn aside, stand here. And he turned aside and stood still. And behold, Cushai came, and Cushai said, Tidings, my lord the king, for the Lord hath avenged thee this day of all them that rose up against thee. Good news, the battle is won. Verse 32. And the king said unto Cushai, Is the young man Absalom safe? And Cushai answered, the enemies of my lord the king and all that rise against thee to do thee hurt be as that young man is right now. He is dead. Cushai tells the whole truth. The report about the battle? But what about David's boy? There it is. The good news and the bad news. The whole truth. 
The battle is won. Absalom is dead. You say, oh, this is 3,000 years ago. I kind of think we're in the same boat. We have good news and bad news. The good news is God loves you. God loves you. The bad news is everyone's a sinner. <laughs> Wouldn't it be just easier to scratch off that everyone is a sinner and sin has a price tag, the wages of sin is death? Wouldn't it be just easier just to cross that off and just stick with the good news? But the good news is better in light of the bad news. Is that right? God loves you. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The bad news is you can't go to heaven with your sin. Your sin needs to be forgiven. And you can get baptized, and you can go to church, and you can be good. But it's not a big scale in heaven. It's not, okay, your sins are over here, and your good deeds are over here, and whichever is the most will get you into heaven. No, no, no. Forgiveness washes away our sins. Jesus Christ is the only one that can wash away our sins. That's why we need a sacrifice, a substitute to die in our place. And Jesus did that for us. The good news and the bad news, they go together. And we must tell the truth. We speak the truth in love, but you, you, don't, you don't want to have heart disease or cancer or a, 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 a just some type of a, a, a deadly disease. And the doctor says, you know, if you will take Reese's Pieces twice a day, uh, you're just going to feel so much better. Now, that's my favorite candy, Reese's Pieces. Uh, but but I, I don't want a doctor telling me a false uh, medication. Uh, 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 I guess that'd be great if Reese's Pieces were medication, wouldn't it? Uh, a false therapy to give me false hope. You want the truth. You need surgery. Uh, you need radiation. Uh, you need chemotherapy. Uh, you need to start exercising. You know, whatever, whatever that advice is, you don't want to hear. Good news, bad news. Cushai is the one who speaks the truth. I think we see the sovereignty of God here. If the kingdom of Judah, under God's chosen king, is to be saved then the enemy who assaults the kingdom must be removed and must be destroyed. And God let it happen that way. And so it will be in the last days. The Bible says, in the last days of the church age, evil will grow worse and worse. Do we see that happening? Not just in America, but all over the world. And it even appears that evil will triumph for a short time in the tribulation. But then comes the battle of Armageddon. It's given to us in the book of Revelation chapter 19. The Antichrist and his armies uh, come to be able to destroy the Jewish people. And they come, and what happens is Jesus Christ descends from heaven, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and in the battle of Armageddon, the blood flows to the, the height of the horse's bridle. Massive, biggest, most Massive battle in all of history is yet to come. And Jesus Christ is enthroned there in the city of David, on the throne of David. The son of David rules and reigns for a thousand years. 
one more person, one more character here in the story, and that is David. David, the one with the heavy heart. And we see this now in verse 33, just one verse. One of the most haunting verses in all the Bible. David's worst fear has come true. Verse 33. And the king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate, and he wept. And as he went, thus he said, O my son, Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. This is why he gave that unrealistic command in verse 5. Deal gently with the young man. And when he hears the truth that his son is dead, he is devastated. The writer of the passage of this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wants us to feel David's heartache. He wants us to feel David's anguish. David wails, Would to God I would have died for thee. And so this chapter ends with the paradox. A safe kingdom and a sad king. The kingdom is safe. The king is sad. What are some lessons from this outburst and rebellion that we can learn? Well, first of all, our sin will affect others. Our sin will affect others. First of all, we think of Absalom's sin, but it's more than Absalom's sin. Again, Absalom, Absalom, how did he get to this place? It was a series of steps. And you might recall the story where, where Amnon assaulted uh, his half-sister, which was, was Absalom's full-blooded sister. And, and David did nothing, and, and he waits two years. And Amnon was killed by Absalom. And Absalom goes into to hiding for a couple of years. He comes back, and they never reconcile. Bitterness. Resentment. Grudge holding. Our sin will affect others. But really, you could even go back a few more chapters, back to chapter 11. David remembered the news from the prophet Nathan uh, after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah that he was forgiven. He would not die, but the sword would never depart from his house. And here he, he wishes that he would have died and his son would have lived. You know, temptation offers pleasure, but it never tells us the price tag. And the price is painful. Second lesson, if you do not forgive, resentment will ruin you. If you do not forgive, resentment will ruin you. You know, forgiveness is a hard choice. It's a hard choice. Unless, unless you focus on the great amount of forgiveness you have received from the Lord. Jesus Christ, the master teacher, he tells this, this, this story about forgiveness. You know the story where there's a, a man who had a debt and he owed, he owed $10 million. And he comes to the Lord and he says, give me some time and I'll pay all the debt. 
in a thousand lifetimes, he could have never earned enough money to pay all the debt. But the king says, the master says, I forgive you the debt. Now, the man that's been forgiven the $10 million, he goes out and he finds someone that owes him 100 bucks. And he says, pay me all you have. And the guy says, if you will give me some time, I will pay you the debt. And it would take about three months to pay off the debt. And he says, no, you're going to debtor's prison. And so the, the Lord, the master, when he hears the news, he goes to the man that was forgiven the $10 million, and he rebukes him, and he says, how could you not forgive $100 when you have been forgiven $10 million? I will turn you over to the tormentors. You can study the passage out. But if you do not forgive, you'll be tormented. If you do not forgive, resentment will ruin you. And so forgiveness is a hard choice unless, as Christians, we focus on the sin debt that we have against God. Ten million dollars we can never pay. And God says, I forgive you because of my son, what Jesus did for you. Do you know what people can say and do against you is a hundred bucks. If you think of the worst kind of mistreatment and sin that can be uh, impinged upon you, someone saying something nasty, someone lying, someone physically assaulting you, someone hurting you or a loved one, it's a hundred bucks. It's a $100 sin. And so we get to Ephesians 4.32, and the Bible says, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. There's, a, there's a, an, ex, uh, an explanation. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. So we have to take a step back and say, How can I forgive this offense, this grudge, this resentment? Because I have been forgiven the $10 million sin debt, and I'm to forgive in the same way that God has forgiven me, I can do it. Because it's not me, and it's not my forgiveness. It is a, it is a heavenly divine forgiveness that flows through me to others. How tragic for people not to come to Christ. Hence, Paul said, I am, I am, I am dead. That brings us to the next point here. The punishment of the wicked is certain. We live in the age of grace. We live in the church age. But grace is only grace to those who believe on Jesus Christ and receive it. How tragic when people don't come to Christ. Paul says, I'm a debtor. I plead with people to come to Christ. The punishment of the wicked is certain. You have until your last breath to receive Christ. The thief on the cross did that. And then the last point there is Christ bore our sin and our guilt when he died on the cross for us. You and I do not need to carry around guilt. We don't have to carry around shame from our past. Jesus Christ died for all of your sins, even your future sins. He died for them. And when you put your faith and trust in Christ, all your sins are transferred to him. When he died upon that cross, he takes our sin, he forgives it. He takes our guilt and our shame and he buries it. And he says, I don't want you to carry it around anymore. And so tonight, if you're living with guilt, if you're living with shame, if you're living with resentment, if you're living with a grudge, if you're living with a hurt, 
I think the message of the chapter is you need to leave it at the cross. You need to walk out here tonight with a conscience void of offense, clear, clean, nothing between you and your Savior, nothing between you and a family member, nothing between you and a friend, a co-worker, an acquaintance, someone in the family of God. It's a great way to live. It's a great way to live, to have a clear and clean conscience, not because you're so good, but because God is so good. And this is what he gives to us. So tonight, difficult chapter. David ends the chapter weeping, but we can learn, we can grow, and we can say, I'm going to walk a different path with a different outcome. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for our time tonight to open the Word of God, to learn about forgiveness, to learn about how to get rid of grudges and resentment and hurt by giving it to you. Thank you that the man of sorrows, the Lord Jesus Christ, took our sorrow, took our sin, took our guilt, took our shame. Even though he was perfect as a substitute for us, he took all the bad and he gives to us all the good. And right now, with our heads bowed, with our eyes closed, if you're here, if you're worshiping online, I invite you tonight to receive this gift of forgiveness, to receive this gift of salvation. The Bible calls it the gift of God. It is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So would you, even if you're at home watching right now, would you bow your head with me? And would you do what I did many years ago as a, as a teenager when I discovered that even as a 15-year-old, sinful, selfish teenager, I could not go to heaven with my sin, and I bowed my head, and I prayed a prayer of commitment to Jesus Christ. I didn't even pray out loud, but God heard the prayer of my heart, and he'll hear the prayer of your heart. And so tonight, if you're watching, would you pray with me? If you sense the Spirit of God tapping on your heart, convicting you of sin, you're not, you're not sure if heaven is your home. Tonight, you can be. You don't even have to be in the church building. You don't have to get baptized. You don't have to do a sacrament. You must be humble enough to acknowledge you need a Savior. Jesus Christ is the Savior. He's the Son of God. He died for you. He rose again. Would you pray with me right now, whether you're here in the auditorium, the Family Life Center, or at home? Pray with me now, sincerely, earnestly, even silently. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sin. I believe that Jesus died for me and rose again. Please come into my heart and become my Lord and Savior. Tonight, I receive Jesus Christ as my own. Please save me. Christian, may I ask you, do you have aught against anyone? Maybe they hurt you. Maybe you hurt them. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe they're Christians. Maybe they're not. You cannot control their actions or their attitude, but you have complete control over your attitude, your actions. May I say tonight, listen to the word of God. 
kind, tender, forgiving. It's the way to live. It's the way to live. Maybe you need to talk to the people. Maybe you don't. But tonight is the night to turn the hurt, the pain, the shame, the guilt, the resentment, the grudge, to turn it over to Christ. Father, thank you. Thank you for the full and complete cleansing we have in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that the Christian life is the absolute best life that anyone could possibly have in this world. And no matter how dark it is in the world with, with sin, with corruption, with health issues or safety issues, in you we are safe. We are secure. And I thank you tonight that we can have the joy of the Lord. We can share that with others. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.